We have some great Christmas gift guides from Any Day, Athletic Brewing, Cometeer, East Fork, and of course, Momofuku. You can visit all of uh, those codes when you get our Discord channel. I'm only saying all the Discord stuff right now because I am in the weeds with time. So visit us at our Discord channel. You can sign up at MajorDemoMedia.com and there is things like $40 off your first two orders of Cometeer and 10% off all Momofuku goods. Or you can listen to the previous pods that we've done. The codes are at the beginning of the podcast. All right, let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Demo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. I am in uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, it is 9.20 in the morning. I have a car picking me up uh, to take us back to America in about 60 minutes or less. You know needs this, so Victoria can turn around the audio and the edits. So apologies to everybody if this is a little bit shorter. I have not had the time to sit down and record. Uh, I never thought I could see one F1 race, let alone two in the span of one week, but I have, and I'm not sure I care more about F1. (laughs) Yeah, um, I I would put this on a bucket list for people. I think that wherever you are, you don't have to have good seats or not, because ultimately it doesn't matter. I think F1 is still better on TV than in person. But I would encourage you, and that's for people that are not car nerds, right? Especially Euro car nerds. Uh, I didn't realize that there are so many in the world. One of the things you should check off on your bucket list is hearing and seeing the uh, the power of a F1 race car. Uh, it is really sort of ineffable. I could make you the the sound in terms of what it makes and everything, but it does not put into you know words cannot put into you know. The sound, the power, everything. It's, it's really awe inspiring. It doesn't make any sense. And I would recommend anybody to at least physically hear the audio because it's not like anything I've ever heard before. So that's something I do think you should do. But after like an hour, I don't know if you need to be watching it. That's just my, my novice take. Uh, anyway, uh, we, we've been here for work. Um, I think we'll do another podcast about everything that's here. I had one of the best Lebanese meals I've ever had outside of Beirut. And I had uh, very tiny birds. I'm not going to say they're ortolans, but I had tiny, tiny, tiny birds. Like (laughs) this. They were delicious. They were so delicious. They were so good. But I had one of the best fatouches I've ever had, which is a great salad. And, you know, when you're in this region of the world, a lot of the foods you have that are, you know, representative of the flavors from this part of the world when you have it say in los angeles or new york it just really doesn't cut it it is a wholly different thing when you're here that is the same i'm sure for every kind of cuisine in the world when you eat it in the birthplace it just tastes different hits different but uh yeah been a while since i've been around to this uh part of the Emirates and man it is it is very different but anyway that's not what we're here to talk about i'm gonna do a three things before three things we're going to get into a partners and we're going to do a pro football food weekly. And I don't even want to talk about my results from last week. Um, and we'll, we'll, when we do PFFW, I'll talk about the Thanksgiving day game, <laughs> the black Friday game that is, but anyway, let's get on to the show properly. 
This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I was thinking about all the Italian restaurants and Japanese restaurants. Because on my travels recently, they are everywhere, the gl- globally, the world over. And I have a theory. This has nothing to do with the, the flavor of the food and why it's universally beloved, it seems, right? Uh, it still boggles the mind that sushi would be so universally loved the world over. It's very hard for me to comprehend. But Italian food, steakhouses, and sushi are like the holy trifecta that are restaurants that are scalable, that are not fast food. My theory on this, and it's a fledgling theory at best, is that because there's so many people working these restaurants, the labor dictates the opening of these same restaurants, right? There's so many steakhouses. And working in a steakhouse is not easy, but ultimately, I know this, because I've spoken to steakhouse owners, we've had a lot of meat-heavy restaurants. Grilling meats, roasting meats in the traditional format while not has a high level of learning, like the high high uh, high ceiling to actually become proficient, but like once you do, there's not that many moving pieces. So I feel like steakhouses, as difficult as they are, are actually simpler to teach as to what is needed, which is why there's so many the world over. Italian restaurants. If you know how to cook pasta, you know how to cook pasta in most restaurants that serve Italian food. Sushi is another thing where most people aren't eating nigiri when they eat sushi. They're just not. They're eating maki rolls, things that are sometimes made by machine. But when you look about maki rolls, think about it. It's sort of not, again, take this with a grain of salt, and I'm not saying, I'm trying to take away the the difficulty of doing it well, right? I'm disregarding the top 25% of maki roll making. But everything else, you're using a mat, it's... It's not, listen, it's not easy to do, but it, it's something that if you've done well before, you're going to be able to take that skill and do it elsewhere. So all three are relatively system-like cooking. And I know I'm not trying, this is not me trolling Italian food like I normally do. I, I'm just saying like, if I'm making Alfredo or Bolognese at a restaurant, and I'm not talking about uh, the authentic Italian restaurants, but even still, like there's so many Italian restaurants, say in New York City and the world over that, of course... If you know how to make that food, it's easier to find a job at other places that make that kind of food. And I think that it's almost, again, I don't know what the right words are, but once you learn how to do that, you can cook anywhere in the world. And I think with Italian, I know I'm missing a bunch of other foods, but I want to think about steakhouses, Italian food, and Japanese food. I, I have a hard time seeing anyone else cracking that list because at some point, it's just a, a, a job about marketing or restaurateurship to some degree, but the labor is what dictates the opening of the restaurants. 
right? And it's the ability to, in, in some ways, this is a more of a, a conversation about the lack of ambitious restaurants. Maybe it's mainly, mainly because when you try to do a new menu that's de novo, and when I say new, it's incorporating elements and techniques that are outside of the normal skill set of cooks, that is like learning a new language. And in some way, when you learn Italian food, steakhouse food, Japanese maki roll making, it's like learning accounting. And you, you can go to any country in the world and, and still have the basics accounting 101 to be able to do that. And when you are trying to learn new techniques or new cuisines that are not of that sort of big three, it is effectively learning a new language each time. And I think that is one of the reasons why it's, you know, it's not just the critics. It's one of the reasons why, you know, restaurateurs opening restaurants that have the similar attributes of, of, of the restaurants that so people are, are very familiar with. The other thing I was thinking that ties to this is system cooking. There's two types of cooking in restaurants. There's system cooking, and, and, and I think these kinds of cook... What, what is system cooking, you say? The late great Joel Robuchon was system cooking. I think that, you know, uh, he perfected it when he had L'Atelier Robuchon, which were counter-seating restaurants after he opened up Maxime's. We was voted like the most important restaurant or the chef in the late 90s. Uh, he passed recently and he's famous for a lot of reasons, but you know, I'm, I'm not the expert on Robuchon's cuisine, but having been to several L'Ateliers around the world, there was a standard and rigidity to the menu that was the same for the most part. The only place that was not the same was in Macau, and that was a very different menu. But system cooking is where you take an ingredient that's been standardized, and it's not, when I say system cooking, it doesn't mean that it's not as difficult. It's still difficult to do. But everything is measured out. I worked one of my first restaurant jobs. You get a book, and it was the first time early on that, you know, when I first started, that it was taken to this degree. And it was just ahead of its time where you work 40 hours a week, you, you have a prep team, or sometimes you are the prep team, and all you do is assemble the things that were, get, were like pre-made for you to some degree. That system cooking, I think, is probably the, what was a minority is now the majority in how food is made today. And I don't know if you could do it any other way successfully, because system cooking is where it's a play. It's like wicked, or even like, a, or like cats. Or something like that, where it's it's something that the audience expects, knows, and you have to make it almost exactly the way it was each and every time. Well, yeah, certain variables may change. And on one hand, I have the Robochons of the world and many of the, say, Swiss chefs of the world, Freddie Girardet's, et cetera, et cetera. And, and on the other hand, we've talked about this, you have the the Gagnères of the world and the, 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 the Passards of the world, which is much more intuitive, much more ingredient-driven, much more... We're going to let the, let the, dic, the, the season and the ingredients dictate what we're going to cook t- today. Polar opposites, all both very difficult, but system cooking is a product of system restaurants. And I feel that Italian steakhouses, maki rolls, and yes, I'm sure there's others, are system kinds of restaurants that are producing system kind of cooking now. Um, and it's not so different when you think about the NFL. You have offenses that are West Coast offense is all about steps. When you hear the term West Coast offense, it's about timing and steps. This doesn't mean there's not decision-making that needs to be made or other variables that are very hard to like process, but the, the, the rigid system itself that has created versions of the West Coast offense, and I'm, I'm not trying to get into football geek talk here, but it's really based on timing. 
and there is freedom of choice, but it's it's pretty rigid in terms of what you're allowed to do. And I feel like system cooking is one of those things. And I, I just I, I I just see that is uh, pretty much the only way you're able to st- like I don't know. It's not me being pessimistic. I just feel like system cooking is one. I don't I don't see a, a, a future where we're going to get to the other way of intuitive cooking because it's just too hard. It's just too hard to learn. It's just too hard to practice on a day-to-day level. Not to say that that's not going to happen. It's going to happen at higher-end restaurants that are trying to do ambitious things. We're not talking about those restaurants. We're talking about the restaurants the world over. It's not so different than, I say, McDonald's, right? McDonald's is the epitome the textbook definition of assistant cooking. Anyway, the other restaurant thought I, I had is just a, a, a reminder. If you're thinking about opening up a restaurant, I would try to own the real estate first. I heard from um, I heard a rumor from a pretty large restaurant group that I admire quite a bit that over the next few years they're going to start to shut down restaurants that they don't own outright. There are advantages tax advantages, economical advantages, business advantages to owning your own real estate. It is. One of the best things you can do to be your own landlord. It's hard enough owning your own restaurant. I don't even know what the percentage is to actually owning the real estate of your own restaurant. But when I look at the people that are doing really well today, even post pandemic, it's because they own their own real estate. I don't own any of my real estate at any of our restaurants, right? Um, I, in fact, most people don't, which is why I don't think it's ever been put as a priority as much as it should. If you can't buy the real estate in the location that you're looking at, you cannot raise the funds to do so, which makes it, it's hard enough to raise money to open up a restaurant. I don't even understand how one would raise money to buy their own real estate or put in a plan where say in 10 years that you will. But I, I would I would probably delay, if I'm a first time restaurateur, I would delay doing it until. Maybe you should find a way to raise money to buy a location first and let other restaurants in there. I don't know. You know, there's there's other ways to do it. But now, if I had to think about it again, I'd probably find, try to find a way to own the real estate if I had to do it all over again. And I, I'm i not the only one that thinks that. So that was it. I, I just don't know if that's being stressed enough. Try to buy your own real estate. There are a lot of people, many of my friends that are trying to be first-time restaurateurs, and their entire focus is raising money to open up the doors to the dream. That, weirdly, is a short-term dream. Right. I think the long-term success that will make it easier is if you can own your own real estate. I also understand the impossibility of doing that. So anyway, those are my three things. One was sort of the big three kinds of restaurants that you see, I think, the world over for the most part. Again, don't hold me to it. I'm sure I'm wrong. And the proliferation of system cooking. When I go to a restaurant where I eat something that's really good and I'm not expecting to be good, and it's a kind of food that is not new, I always want to look at the kitchen a little bit closer because they have an operating system that's better than most. I think it'd probably be better if we get a chef friend of mine to talk about this in detail. System cooking and system restaurants. It is not a knock at all. In fact, it's really difficult to figure out how to do. In some ways, it's as difficult to make a new menu from scratch every day. Anyway, let's take a break. All right. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. 
This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Yuno has for me three things, three questions from three historical figures. I've been waffling about this. You know, originally I had, uh, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I think it was a book my, my brother had to read in college about Andy, Andy Grove and Bob Noyce of Intel when they changed Intel from memory process to microchip processing. I was going to talk about that because that legitimately is always top of mind for me. But I changed it up because, you know, a, a couple months ago, there was that meme about what do you, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And it got me thinking again, just what a bubble we live in. I don't think about the Roman Empire that much at all. You know what I think about all the time? The Mongolian Empire. Is that is that the Asian version of the, the Roman Empire then? Because I definitely think about them all the time too. That yeah. and the Three Kingdoms era. Yeah. No, I think about Genghis Khan and his brood all the time. When I, so when I was seeing like all of these people talking about the Roman Empire, I was like, I, I I don't think about it that much, you know? It was like weird. This was something I want to talk about because it's it's it shows to me as a weird way where we have come from food, right? Before, 25 years ago, everything was one item. It was like French food and it, that was it. And now it's not because the world now thinks about food in a different way. But I don't know if we've made that much change if everyone's thinking about the Roman Empire. I was like shocked how much people think about the Roman Empire. I think about Genghis Khan all the time. Back in the day, my dad, the only time my dad ever pronounced, correct my pronunciation on anything was I said, I don't know how people, how do, how do people want to pronounce Genghis Khan? Genghis, right? But I think you're sure. Genghis. 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 Khan. He's like, no, it's Genghis. My dad was like, no, it's Genghis. I was like, what do you mean? It's Genghis. He's like, no, it's Genghis. I was like, my father has never corrected me on anything. The reason I had a, fasc- a fascination about Genghis is because my dad corrected me about on the pronunciation. But in, in Asian cultures, everyone looks at Genghis as Julius Caesar, as Alexander the Great, as Hannibal. All the people that you grew up thinking that were amazing in Western cultures, Genghis is all of those combined because one could argue that the Roman greatness of Roman culture maybe was not as great as Mongolian culture. I'm not a historian. I'm not a cultural anthropologist. I, 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 I would love to ask Genghis, did you have any, would you have any idea that people would think that Julius Caesar is greater than you are? I would antagonize Genghis, Genghis and say, people would think that this guy, Alexander the Great, who came like a thousand years before you, was way cooler than you were. Just saying, I would, I would, I would just throw trolling laws at Genghis and be like, "You're not that great compared to how people are going to reference you in two thousand years." They won't even mention the same breath of badass motherfuckers. I feel pretty confident that if I was able to go back and ask him this, they would have gone. What is now Eastern Europe would have gone. You know, Eastern Europe would be England today. <laughs> I feel pretty confident about that. 
I think about him as a true underdog story. I think about that culture as a true underdog story. It's like pre-Confucian ways too. So it's hard for me to describe my love for that because it wasn't, it's not for the fact that it wasn't brutal, right? And here's that, here's where I, I'm going to leave it at this. People may say, but Genghis, Genghis was a bad person. He murdered a lot of people. He did terrible things. On the other hand, the Roman Empire didn't. Just saying, <laughs> just saying. Right? Like, how can you wash away that? I think they, it's just, that's all. I'm just going to leave it at that. So I, I would probably go with my first choice. I would go, Genghis, and one day in 2023, a meme will go around asking people that, do they realize the significance of Roman culture and how much they would think about it and the, how much they, they, they sort of surrender to the idea that the Roman civilization at its peak would still affect daily life today and not even mention Mongolian civilization. That it was technically the largest land empire in the world's history. They won't even mention that. Anyway, that'd be number one. Number two, I would go to Pierre and Jean Toigo, and I would ask them, what was it like to basically invent modern plating today? They have the Toigo restaurant, which is now run by their grandson, Cesar, who is the son of Michel. And Michel was the son of Jean? Yeah, I think so. Pierre, I believe, was the... Gourmet guy. Anyway, they split the kitchen in two, but they were they they work for Fouternam Point and them with Bocuse and Alain Chappelle and Michel Gerard and a few others really were the godfathers of nouveau cuisine. You might say, I don't give a shit about that. Well, you should in the sense that almost everything you eat today at a restaurant is from them. And when you go to a fine dining restaurant, when, if you went in like the 50s, 40s, everything was served Russian style. Russian style is when everything is brought to your table and plated table side, right? And then brought to you, right? So everyone's getting the same plate of food. And then, you know, that that's how things were plated. They were plated at your table for the most part. They made a dish that I remember talking to Rich Teresi who staged he, he worked at Toigro for a, a bit. We should have Rich on just to talk about this. I remember him describing to me making the Sorel salmon dish. So one of the most important dishes ever made, in the Western Canada at least, is a, a scallop of salmon that's gently, quickly cooked. Like quickly cooked, what I'm saying, like 20, 30 seconds on a emulsion of a puree of sorrel, which is very tart and acidic. It's a very simple sauce. And Nouveau Cuisine was all about lightening and cleaning up the heavier foods created by, you know, even all the way going all the way back to uh, August Escoffier's days, where super rich, super long, super expensive to make sauces and food. And it was about decadence. Nouveau Cuisine was the, the polar opposite, right? It was the antithesis, the dialectic to what came before that. And this restaurant in Rouen, France changed the whole game because I can't remember who was I was talking to. And it was a it was at the mad symposium. But basically, you know, you you could have argued that they created modern day plating today. And that dish was so instrumental. And it's still a dish that is served today. It's simple, it's beautiful, it's genius. It's a genius dish. I wanted to ask them as Pierre and Jean, did you guys ever think that you guys were gonna change the game? as much as you did with this dish. I would love to have been in the room when they were thinking to, about this dish. You know, maybe we can put a, a little picture of what this dish looks like right now and ask them. It, it wasn't just the significance of this dish, but the plating of it, the embracing of lighter, quicker, really avant-garde techniques. I, I, I would blow my mind. 
if they knew. I would I want to ask them. I want to know what their thought process was in that room. And I could talk about plating. Maybe it all. I don't know. I would love to go back in time just to see plating and the evolution because that was the that was really the that era was the beginning of changing of how things were done. And I would love to just go back and see that because that was a seminal, important moment in gastronomy and and just see the beginning of nouveau cuisine and the plating and how a lot of those forefathers of nouveau cuisine embrace Japanese concepts and go back. I'd love to talk about plating. I love talking about plating in general. I'd love to talk about Japanese plating. But that was a merger of sensibilities, I think, in plating that were happening because it was an allergic reaction to the, the heaviness of French gastronomy at the time. And people were traveling quite a bit. You know, Michel Bra with his gargouille, which was this smattering of vegetables. It began a moment to plate things in a way that was simpler and embracing of nature. And it made sense. Anyway, if I had to go really go back in time, I would go back and ask the brothers, what their thought process was exactly from their words, which I'm sure has been written in books and magazines and articles for many, many years because it's that important of a dish. But I would love to have gone, like been in the room with them at the like when they thought of that dish. Because I've been told that how they make it today is not very different than when they actually made it the very first time. The last one I would ask, I'd go back, I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. I would go back and ask Bob Dylan, did he really get in a motorcycle accident? Yeah, I don't, I'm sure that he did, but man, I think about him a lot. I think about Bob Dylan a lot. I think about him going electric, that Rolling Thunders tour, and the pressure that he was under, and wanting to, you know, maybe he did get a motorcycle accident. Maybe he didn't, but he disappeared out of public view for a long time. And whether he did or he didn't, I think that mentally, spiritually, what he went through was probably a really horrific motorcycle accident or the equivalent of. And I've always thought about that, right? That the only way for him to stop doing what he was doing was, you know, to not do it anymore. And I don't know why, but that's always been something I wanted to ask anybody is, is like, what was going on in his life at that time? One hand, if he actually got in a motorcycle accident, did he do it subconsciously? right? If he didn't get in a motorcycle accident, how did he pull it off, right? And if you're unfamiliar with it, that period of his life, that's a period of his life that I'm most fascinated with because I just think what he did and what he was doing was just phenomenal. It really influenced my life, still does to this day, but also that what he felt like, I would love to know and and get those stories. So uh, that's one person I've never cooked for. I've cooked for some of the members of the band, the late Robbie Robertson, but I've never cooked for Bob Dylan. And if I did, I don't think I'd ever have the balls to ask him any of this stuff. Quite frankly, he'd probably lie and give me, you know, some bullshit story anyway. But Dylan going electric is just a a cultural benchmark for me. And uh, that accident is something I would love to know about or or the lack thereof. Anyway, let's take a break. We're going to do a quick partners. There are times when we go to a restaurant or or ordering, especially when we lived in New York, we would have this issue a lot. And I wonder if the rest of the world feels this way now that people order in way more than they did before, especially during the pandemic. One of the great conundrums is where to eat. The indecision of where to eat, it happens all the time, right? Every time we're on the West side and coming back to the East side, we're like, should we stop? Let's stop by K-Town. Where are we going to eat, right? And you lay out your options, it's either a restaurant that does one thing really well, a restaurant that does a couple things really well, a restaurant that does a lot of things sort of well, right? My wife loves seafood. My, she loves Japanese food. She loves hue. 
when we were just uh, we're married or when we were dating without kids, it was a lot easier to make these decisions. I think making decisions with kids now is there's no decision to be made. You're always going for the thing where it's the simplest. Everything is the simplest. But we're making this decision without kids now or the time. When we were living in New York and we would order in, it is paralysis. You know what you're going to do. I could spend hours. I mean, you probably have listened to me talk about how to menu. I would spend all day sometimes thinking about where I'm going to eat, what I'm going to eat, knowing full well that I'm going to order from two or three places anyway. But I would expand the opportunity to think of that. I'm going to order from, you know, 2000 restaurants and really play how to menu every day. And what a waste of fucking time. The problem is when you have too many choices, the indecision about what to order when you have a lot of options is exactly, when I say exact, it's exactly like the indecision I have when I turn on TV. I had no fucking problem watching whatever I had when there were rabbit ears and I had to get up and physically change the channel on the TV back in the day. Even when there was just a simple cable box and you couldn't DVR things, not having an option, that was fine. More options. I still really appreciated everything. Now there's an infinite amount and I can watch it at any time of day. It's paralysis of choice. And, and, and I experienced that quite a bit. We, we do not order delivery that much. We, we cook mainly because of our kids, you know, and, and, and to control some of the allergy situations we have now, especially with our youngest, but having the options. Now, do we cook at home? Should I make the leftovers? Should I cook something from scratch? Should we have delivery? If we are going to do delivery, what are we going to do? It is exhausting having those options. And it's not just an indecision. I just feel like it's a microcosm for the, the, the fatigue we get from making decisions. Decision fatigue is a real thing. And when it comes to eating, as a diner, it's better than ever. You have so much choice. But making decisions all the time can be really tiresome. And, you know, when we do have a date night or if we go on a double date night, it's, you know, we had this recently. Do we go get Korean barbecue? Do we go get Italian food? Do we get Jirong, you know, and Peking duck? Any of those would be awesome. What pisses me off is the people that we're dining with want us to make the decision. And they don't experience the decision fatigue. All they get to experience is getting to critique where the fuck I choose to goddamn eat dinner. And I think this goes for people that are newlyweds, newly dating. To anybody that's been together a long time, making decisions as to where to eat, what to eat in 2023, 2024, moving forward, is only getting more exhausting. But with AI, I think a lot of that's going to change. I do believe that. When we started Maple back in the day, which was really the first ghost kitchen ever made, which was an app that served many, many people in New York meals, I wanted them to basically say, listen, you've ordered like three hamburgers, four hamburgers. You're going to have enough data on people to know what they should order, when they're going to want a desire to eat something else, to change it up. The algorithm for Spotify, the algorithm you see for Netflix, it's only getting better, right? I think the Spotify algorithm is actually pretty uncanny at how good it is in in recommending me things. Even the algorithm you have on Facebook when you're on Instagram or something, or TikTok, it's getting pretty good. It's a matter of time before that algorithm is being implemented with AI in terms of how you order things and the decision you make. And eventually, all your decisions are going to be made through online reservations if they're not already. Even the places that you don't go to using a reservation system, you pay by credit card. 
And I'm sure they'll be able to extrapolate when you paid by cash on certain things. And eventually, I believe that you're going to have a, a bot that's going to be able to tell you where to eat and what to eat. And you're going to be like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, good idea. They already recommend you things. But I think it'll get to the place where it's so seamless that it'll know you exactly what you want. You know, it'll see that, huh, on Instagram, I've been waiting on that Mapo Tofu picture for a, a two seconds longer than I normally might have. And I think it'll be able to talk to the chatbot and say, hey, they haven't had Mapo Tofu in quite some time. And I'll, and I'll be like, oh, I should eat Mapo Tofu. And I'll tell the group, we should get Sichuan food. And everyone's probably going to do the same thing. Like, yeah, we should. That's how it's going to happen. That indecision is going to go away. And uh, we're all going to look like the humans at the end of Wally. It's going to be great. All right, let's get a, take a break. All right, let's do a quick PFFW. And uh, I promise you next week we're going to have Chris. We're going to do things in person. Uh, my traveling is coming to an end for now. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> um going to be on the road again. But I think our next podcast will be in person. Anyway, PFFW is time for PFFW, Pro Football Food Weekly, our guide to determining which teams are going to win the upcoming week's football games, matchups by judging the only thing that matters, the food. Of course, we'll be sticking to evaluating the five S's, sandwiches, steakhouses, seafood, sweets, and special teams. Last game was Black Friday at MedLife Stadium. And uh, I, I, we finished it. We got it done. And literally, that was seven weeks. It was very stressful. Very stressful. That live programming is difficult. So shout out to the entire team at Amazon and Spoon and the coordinating of it. Like that first scene where I was supposed to give the sandwich to the, the to Wit and Carissa, Tony, and Richard Sherman, I was not prepared. I was in the weeds. Because things get, you lose the track of time. And the funny thing is making food at the end of the game for the players, the MVPs, I wasn't even watching the game. It moves so fast, right? We're, we talk about, when we talk about the bear time moving fast, when things are happening as they should doesn't mean when they're good just as they should how quickly time moves and my god i was i was in the weeds all day for that but i'm glad i got it done i'm thankful for that opportunity and uh man we had a, you have no idea how many people were working behind the scenes on that sandwich i think there were like six people from whole foods you know people from amazon we had jj from momofuku helping out it was a lot it sounds asinine extremely nonsensical and trivial. If I wasn't part of it myself, I would be listening or thinking about like seven months and all those people. Well, so fucking stupid. But if you weren't, let me tell you how hard it was and all the moving pieces. That being said, the Black Friday game was amazing. I was happy to be part of it. Unfortunately, the Jets were not better. I was really excited to give Tenzel Smart that charcuterie board. And shout out to Solomon Thomas and the entire D-line of the Jets. Those boys know food. They know food. They know where to eat, what to eat. I, I, I was really shocked. I just didn't think that they were going to be totally into food and where to eat. But yeah, they did. And they were big boys. They were real big boys. But really excited to hang with them. I'm really delaying the idea that I have to go over my record at all. Because, you know, I was dead wrong. The algorithm was dead wrong last week, correct? It was indeed. I think you had the Jets winning. I think it's a, a bunk mute point because um, Wilson didn't even start as quarterback. <laughs> the algorithm didn't anticipate Yeah, that's that. the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Zach Wilson not starting. Total problem. <laughs> oh, we can gloss past that part, Dave. 
<laughs> so what am I for the season? What am I for the season? Um, I don't have the record up on me because at some point we start we started uh, pre-recording these, so uh, it's it's not great. Let's let's not talk about it. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll talk about it next time. Anyway, we we got Seattle at Dallas, and that's where the game is this week. I will not be there, but I will be at the the following week in Las Vegas. Seattle, Dallas is five and a half point favorites. The algorithm is, listen, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm not going to use the algorithm. Seattle's going to win. Seattle's going to win because the food and seed in Seattle is better than the food scene in Dallas. Okay. All right. I'm going to keep it simple. Yeah, my, my, you know, there's a carbone there now and blah, 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 blah. People will talk about Whataburger, but the reality is Seattle has a better food scene. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, you know, Seattle's got its fast food. People in Dallas and Texas will talk about Whataburger. Whataburger. I mean, people get so mad talking about Whataburger. So fired up. It's the best. And there's Knife and there's all these. Other, I'll be honest. Here's the deal. I've never been to Dallas, Texas. No, that's not true. I have been to Dallas. I've been to Dallas. No, or was that? No, I've never been to Dallas. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm just going to say this. As a Washington football team fan, fuck the Cowboys. I don't care what the algorithm sped out. I'm never choosing the goddamn Cowboys. You kidding me? That's ridiculous. <laughs> worst, worst football team to root for in the world. If, if Every time you meet a Cowboys fan that's not from the Texas area, you should write them <laughs> off. Like cousin, like cousin Sal, <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, um, no, I, I do think that Seattle wins on seafood. Clearly, steakhouse. You could probably let's give it to Dallas. The sandwiches, I'm going to give to Seattle, and sweets, I'm going to give to Seattle. Special teams, I'll give to Dallas. It's still Ooh. a three-two win. Seattle's going to win by. Seattle's going to win by three points. Right. No, fuck. It. I'm going to take the money line. Okay. So just one. There you go. All right. Sorry if this has been a discombobulated podcast. Uh, I'm jet lagged and I got to go. 